0: Hello and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. One of the Web3 topics I'm most interested in is digital identity. I believe that after money, the killer use case for public blockchains is changing how authentication and authorization works on the internet. In this episode, I'm joined by Itai Turban, the co-founder and CEO of Dynamic Labs. Dynamic is building a platform for developers to bring Web3 Auth to any application. In our conversation, Itai explains how he went from chief product officer at coffee company Cometeer to founding a crypto startup. We compare the current crypto wallet competition to the browser wars of the 90s and debate the balance of privacy and information sharing and what the future interactions for personal information will look like in Web3. After the episode, if you want to learn more about digital identity and wallet tech, you can find past public key episodes with Caroline Hill from Circle and Omer Siddiqua of D-Wallet Labs in the show notes. Today, I'm joined by Itai Turban, co-founder and CEO of Dynamic. Ittai, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited.
0: Oh, this is going to be a fun conversation because we're combining a whole bunch of things that I'm interested in in crypto. One is wallets. Another is identity. We've got all the topics today. But before we get to that, I was reviewing your background preparing for the podcast. And I'm always fascinated about how people get into crypto because I think these are the best stories. You're a product guy from early on. Started out as a product manager, I think, in the Israeli Defense Forces, went to MIT. And then from there, you've you've worked in a number of different companies. Tell us a bit about that and how you ended up founding Dynamic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, my, my background, to your point, is a little bit all over the place. It is coherent in my head, but I'm not sure if that reflects anywhere. In terms of background, so I grew up in Israel. So I'm originally from Haifa, Israel, born and raised. I had a web development company growing up. So I was uh, you know, trying, and this was early 2000s, I was trying to kind of figure out how I help small businesses in Israel get online for the first time. So I built websites for folks. And then uh, after that, just like most other Israelis, I joined the Israeli Defense Forces, Army Intelligence, worked, honestly, one of the funnest parts of my career so far. I'm not sure if you can define as a career, but, you know, I got to work on some really, really exciting things, uh, which I won't dive into, but that was kind of my exposure to kind of the fun of working on on anything software. And after that, within eight days of finishing my army service, moved to Boston, did my undergrad at MIT. That's where, by the way, I met my co-founder, Yoni. Uh, We're both Israeli. There are two Israeli undergrads at MIT every year, so we had to be friends. Uh, (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't really a choice. Uh, And then I kind of continued on the kind of the software track for a while, had worked at IBM Research for a while, did my undergrad in computer science, then kind of completely switched to strategy consulting at BCG. So I spent two years in refineries and paper mills and chemical plants So I I guess not very soft worry. Moved back to business school at, at Harvard, where I started a startup. But to your actual question about crypto, before I continue on kind of the background, between undergrad and my master's, Yoni and I kind of dove into crypto. So this was kind of 2012, 2013, 2014. And we got really excited. I think that's when we bought our first Bitcoins. And we've been kind of passionate about this since. If you kind of go back and had you stood next to us for the last 10 years as we just talked, you would hear probably, I would argue, 50% of our conversations would be crypto-related.
0: You're what I call an OG. You've been in this since the beginning is what it sounds
1: like. I, I don't know if I can claim that title, mostly because I feel like the fact that I didn't take the plunge, I look at folks who did in awe. Uh, those, those are very much the real OGs. I'm Let's call this a sideline OG. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. If I'm defining that as a trademark term going forward. But we love everything and anything crypto. And we've been passionate for a while. But to your point, we haven't kind of made the actual full-time jump until recently after uh, business school. I had a startup in online travel, then worked in kind of HR tech and benefits, then on, on identity and kind of a jewel on the software side. Then in, in coffee at a company called Cometeer as a chief product officer. By the way, shameless plug on the podcast, check out Cometeer.com. It's a great coffee company. Last year, we actually jumped into dynamic and jumped into kind of crypto full time. It felt to us very, very similar to kind of the 2000 early 2000s, like Ajax, where you play around with it and you it blows your mind in terms of the things it can do. And for us, it felt like, okay, this is really the only thing to, to work on. So that's kind of the extremely long version of background plus origin story of how we got excited about crypto.
0: You are definitely the first person we've had on the podcast who's gone from coffee to crypto. So I love that trajectory. We're going to have to search for more people who have made that move. As you started thinking with your co-founder, Yoni, about building dynamic, like what was the market opportunity or maybe the problem that you were seeing that you felt like had to be addressed and, and led you to found a company? Because obviously that's a pretty big leap off a cliff there.
1: First on the founding of a company... Yoni and I have been trying to figure out ideas for a company for, I would say, since we met. Uh, We actually, I think at one point, I want to say in 2012, we applied to Y Combinator together, trying to build something with a terrible idea which uh, clearly was not up to par of what YC was expecting. So we didn't get in, but we've been trying to, the amount, I would say the amount of side projects or ideas for side projects that we went through has been tremendous. Anything from kind of thinking about email innovation to thinking about kind of travel, it became very clear to us that really two things happen that kind of enable kind of wallet-based authentication or, or enable everything and kind of web 3 identity. The first of which is when you go, and this is how we thought about dynamic, when you go into an open sea or a Magic Eden, and you connect your wallet, and all your information shows up, and you don't have to create an account, and you don't have to create a password, and it just kind of works, is this magical moment. It's this one-way door, you can't unsee it. And so that was this really, really fundamentally cool thing for us which was, hey, you know, over time, this is how you're gonna interact with websites. You're not gonna create an account, you're not gonna need to kind of remember password, you're just gonna connect with your wallet, and we can debate what wallets will look like in five years, but that interaction is here to stay, And everyone who sees that interaction realizes the power of it. So that was the first part. And the second part is, you know, we looked at the wallet space and we thought about it very similar to kind of the the wallet, essentially wallet wars. It felt like the 90s browser wars on steroids, right? Because instead of five browsers competing for ownership, you get 50 or 100, 200 wallets trying to compete for ownership. And then there's competition at the chain level and across kind of identity standards and so on. And so it felt that... That plus the growth of wild based authentication is not a sustainable thing for developers to handle on their own. And so that's where kind of dynamic comes in, into play, which is, okay, how do we, quote unquote, reduce the noise of speed of innovation in the industry and kind of abstract that away for developers, very much similar to kind of off 0 model that has worked phenomenally well and we're giant fans of off to zero as a company. That was really what we were, how we were thinking about this when we started.
0: I love that because these are observations I've been having. I started tweeting toward the end of last year that 2022 would be the year of the wallet wars. And I saw you actually using that in some of your your blogs on the dynamic site. Because it seemed to me like it was such an open wound of problem domain. Like the UX wasn't amazing, but it would also be ultimately like a very important control point in the ecosystem. Like if you had an incredibly popular wallet, you know, that would drive you know huge flow of funds and opportunity to monetize around transaction fees as we've seen metamask do successfully and then this like blossoming of you know all the major exchanges creating their own wallets and then there's sort of like chain by chain specialty wallets there's some wallets that focus on nfts rather than cryptocurrency i think you know ultimately we'll see that trend like come into a consolidation but in the meantime it creates this massive amount of complexity for everybody who's trying to build a dApp. Which wallets do I support? And today it's sort of like, well, we'll de facto MetaMask, and then we'll use the open Wallet Connect standard, but that means maybe some degraded experience or functionality or additional testing complexity that we've got to sustain for all our non-MetaMask users. And like that whole cycle, it feels very messy to me. It's like the days when web developers had to support four fairly major popular browsers times you know, five or six different versions of each. So you had this matrix of like 20 browsers you were supporting, different web standards supported throughout, like really hard problem to maintain for a small dev team.
1: I think that's a, a that's an important observation, right? The browser analogy here is really, really critical observation. There, there's a fundamental, there's one difference that I think it is important, but to your point, it's about future-proofing, right? It's the fact that even if you support wallets today you actually don't the market is moving so quickly that you actually don't know who you need to support tomorrow and again it doesn't end just at wallet support right it's it's around the thing after authentication it's around nft gating it's around kind of all these really interesting identity solutions that are being that are coming up whether obviously uh, things like ENS or unstoppable domains or other really interesting solutions. But the idea is that you have to, it's not about today, it's about the ongoing maintenance, right? The, just the one thing on the browser part that I, I want to highlight is my hypothesis is actually consolidation doesn't necessarily need to happen. Wallets are very much windows to Web3. Right, very similar to like browsers, but there is an argument to be made that you're you might have a gaming wallet and you might have a social wallet and you might have a DeFi wallet and they might be very different and, and they're very interesting kind of problems uh, to solve within the wallet space and how it plays out within the next five ten years is gonna be this like fascinating thing. I'm excited to see it. It's one of those things. I've realized my ability to predict the future is very poor. That <laughs> I know it would be wrong, but. I'm I, it's it's gonna be this exciting kind of the fun of chaos essentially.
0: You and me both on that ability to predict the future. I definitely agree there, and and that's such a different perspective than I would have on kind of a wallet per purpose almost or a wallet per identity. Because at the end of the day, a wallet is really managing one or more private keys and potentially tokens and NFT. So I would have bet they would all go to the same place. Maybe unpack why you think that users end up having multiple of those over time.
1: Discount what I say a little bit, right? Because I'm usually wrong, never in doubt. (laughs) Uh, One of the things that are fascinating about the the wallet space and, and so many talented people competing in this space is that when you compete on shared rails... When everyone, de facto, to your point, uh, builds a thing that generates a public key out of a private key and so on, you start innovating on other things. And you can start innovating vertically and start building experiences that are very different than other wallets. First, there is an argument to be made that the way wallets kind of get to a billion customers is not necessarily as an additional app on your phone, but rather as the app on your phone today turns into a wallet. And a good example of that is kind of Coinbase's MPC approach of taking their entire customer base and saying, okay, let's now generate an MPC wallet for them. They don't have to worry about private keys. We will be semi-custodial. But then de facto, they have turned 70 million or however many folks they have into, into wallets and added 70 million people to or... 60 or 50 million people into an ecosystem. The likelihood that you go into your Coinbase MPC wallet and use it to interact with Instagram, in my opinion, is slightly low. You might have a completely different use case of an Instagram-related wallet or even Instagram building a built-in wallet within the app or a Twitter wallet within the Twitter app with that use case. So there is, and I'm basing this, by the way, not on my idea, there are much smarter folks that I've talked to that provided kind of the clear inspiration for this. There is an argument that there isn't a winner-take-all within the wallet space and there isn't even a wallet as a separate app or other wallet as technology that's embedded across multiple types of applications with their own specific use cases
0: okay i'm buying that i can see you know while it's become De facto feature within lots of different types of applications makes a lot of sense to me, and then and then of course you get to meta wallets that manage all the the wallets of wallets. But maybe shifting gears a little bit, so I think the landscape that led you to create Dynamic makes a ton of sense. The problem problem domain is one that definitely is in need of a solution. Talk to us a bit about like where is the company now is the product available in market? Can I go sign up and start using dynamic if I'm a developer? And maybe even a bit of the the solution pitch, like what are the problems you're solving?
1: The way, again, to think about dynamic is really kind of off zero for wallet-based authentication, right? So if you're, a developer who needs to think about kind of authentication and then potentially kind of orchestration of everything post-authentication. So NFT-gating access lists, collection of kind of contact information through kind of these really interesting Web3 communication protocols and so on. That's when you would come to Dynamic. Where the company stands today is we, we started uh, late last year. We announced uh, our funding towards the end of June, if I recall correctly, and, and one thing I found that in startup land, time is an illusion, uh, and my ability to remember when we actually announced has gone to zero. But, uh, <laughs> uh, we announced towards the end of June our closed beta, and today we're in closed beta. Slowly onboarding folks that come in, you can apply at dynamic.xyz, and we reach out to you and have a conversation. And the reason we're kind of going a little bit slow, at the end of the day, we're an authentication company. And all authentication companies are fundamentally security companies. And so as we offer our services, on the list of things we cannot you know, afford to do anything short of a phenomenal job on is everything kind of security, stability, uptime, and so on. And so we're spending our time making sure that we do that correctly before we kind of go out of closed beta towards kind of a bigger expansion. But for now, we're in closed beta, anyone who's interested can go to dynamic.xyz and just apply, and you're likely a good fit if you're actively thinking about multi-chain authentication, you're thinking about gating. Uh, we have some customers who kind of use us for gating, and then I redirect to Shopify for gated commerce. Those types of use cases are super interesting to us, and we're kind of working with beta customers on.
0: That's amazing. I I love this. So assuming I can get myself to the front of the line, if I'm building a DAP and I care about multi-chain, need to support multiple wallets across those chains... Dynamic takes all that complexity out of it for me, meaning I just implement some of your JavaScript libraries into my my app that I'm building, and I then get a control panel that allows me to kind of administer all of my user authentication flows. Correct. Is that a fair way to summarize, or am I, am I making that too easy?
1: Let's say it this way, which is that's the immediate pro- value proposition we provide to your point. The idea yeah. is how do you do that within five minutes, right? And we provide that and ideally you can set up a dynamic within five minutes. But the magic of dynamic is actually kind of what happens after you set it up, which is we think about the world in how do you then uh, start toggling things on that are identity related? Right. So how do you turn on again an access list as an example? Or one day, how do you kind of turn on a Spruce ID for storage or Disco for a social or Lens or CyberConnect for social information? How do you automatically pull that without having to implement a second and a third and a fourth thing? So don't think about dynamic just as kind of multi-chain, you know, wallet support, but think about it as everything that has to do with Web3 identity. Ideally, you set up dynamic once and then as new things launch, you just have support for them. As you start wanting to retrieve uh, Lens Protocol information, you should just be able to turn that on and pull that information into kind of your dynamic profile. Those are as kind of, th- there are more opportunities to work within kind of dids and verifiable credentials and kind of privacy preserving kind of ways to store information. You don't, ha- you shouldn't, as a developer, need to think about the complexity of that. You should just be able to turn that on within dynamic and enjoy that the benefit of that
0: it's such a an amazing simplification of an area that's really high complexity today one example and you know a little bit of a plug for chain analysis is we saw this big gap when sanctions suddenly became front and center to the crypto world with Russia's invasion of Ukraine earlier this year. And obviously the world kind of responded to that with you know significant financial limitations on Russian nationals and the, the Russian state. And suddenly everybody needed to be concerned about the sanctions activity. So we released a, a free on-chain smart contract or Oracle service, and then an API. And I think you were able to, within just a few weeks, to incorporate that screening check as a feature within dynamic, which a developer can turn on or off as they decide it's necessary for their application, right?
1: That's exactly right. That's a, that, I think that's a great example of, for very specific use cases, to your point around DeFi, around use cases that touch money, in specific jurisdictions, you have compliance requirements, right? And the question is, how do we make sure that if you have requirements that you need to adhere to, you have a tool that you can just toggle on to your point? And, you know, restrict access to within a specific use case you have with a chain analysis, right? So that's an example of kind of one vertical within DeFi where the toggle kind of concept works really well, which is, okay, how do I just turn that on? Right, and a very similar kind of either example is kind of uh, you know extend to privacy-preserving information sharing or things of that sort or Web three-based communication. The idea is how do you completely abstract away the need to implement and maintain another thing, and just kind of toggle it on and off, and we handle the complexity beneath the surface of that.
0: Very cool. You mentioned something a couple minutes ago that I want to I want to jump back to, which was this idea of you know, verifiable identity. There's this term, a DID, or a DID, I hear some people pronounce it as, that is becoming more and more popular. My perspective is currency was really the first killer use case in the blockchain domain. It's driven all the popularity over the last decade. Identity seems like the next use case that is going to have widespread implications. You all published a blog we'll link to, but maybe if you if you can summarize kind of the big pieces around this new layer of identity management, because I think it's a core part of what Dynamic is building to support, if I understood it correctly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, to your point, the beauty of crypto in my opinion is not necessarily kind of the money part, but it's the shared rails part. It's the fact that everyone works on kind of these shared rails, whether it's shared payment rails or whether it's shared identity rails, right? And the ability for you to go from website A to website B and reuse information in a way where everyone can work within kind of these open set standards. One of the challenges you face today in web two is that you go to website A and you enter your information and you have to provide everything. And then you go to website B and you enter your information and your address, etc. And again, you have to provide everything. And this is the complete reverse of this kind of privacy approach, which is what is the minimum information I can provide to you in order to prove what it is you need to be kind of proven on the website side while maintaining my privacy and while maintaining my sanity or not having to fill out the same information over and over and over again. And there are multiple ways of doing this, either with verifiable credentials and DIDs, uh, decentralized identifiers, or with bound tokens. But the principle is that can I do something once, sign it in a way and store it in a way where the second time I'm asked to do the same thing, I can show a proof that I've done it and potentially show a subset of the information allowing me to to portray that I have completed the proof required without resharing my information. Kind of the example I like to use is the one-click checkout for the web, right, which is inherently... Can I go to website A and via a combination of a wallet for payment and a wallet for storage of information, my address, et cetera, with a verifiable credential and decentralized identifier, can I really complete kind of one-click checkout on website A and then one click checkout on website B without re-entering the same information over and over again. And that's kind of the beauty of these shared rails for identity is they allow you to start doing these kind of magical things of cross-site information sharing. And I know kind of that that was an extremely long answer to your question, but Hopefully it illustrates the exciting things you can do with privacy preserving identity that you can take with you. And Disco brands this as kind of a backpack, which I think is a really cool branding of kind of take with you in a backpack and kind of share across sites as you see fit.
0: I think that last point that you just made is the key one there, right? Is this privacy preserving identity sharing, which to me is like two concepts that are a little bit in conflict, but we're seeing this is highly topical right now in crypto. Tornado Cash, obviously, was this decentralized mixing service where the core premise was Let's break some of the on-chain traceability of transactions notionally for privacy purposes, right? It, it shouldn't be the case that everyone can trace every transaction back to the originating wallet because there's good reasons for privacy. But obviously we saw some very bad people, North Korean hackers in particular, who were abusing that Tornado Cash service to launder really large volumes of money. And so Treasury stepped in and took some action to basically, you know, remove Tornado from from being something anybody that touches the US financial system could then in turn touch. And I think privacy focused people, you know, there's a huge outcry here for good reason. I believe privacy is a fundamental right, but at the same time I think there is the other side of that which is we also need methods and approaches to be able to prevent bad actors from abusing the platform. And so it it seems like the in the middle the middle ground here that we we necessarily need to get to is this idea of verifiable identity that doesn't necessarily link me to my real world identity. We had Caroline Hill from Circle on the podcast recently. She was talking about a project called Verity that they are launching, kind of supporting getting off the ground. And I think that is key to this whole idea of privacy decentralization in in Web3 is going. I'm curious if you agree, if you have some thoughts on the topic.
1: Yeah, it's a topic I'm personally fascinated by. I think it comes down to a kind of a fundamental question of, of when you interact with someone, do you need... Need to know everything about them, or do you not just need proof that they are who they say they are? One of the cool things about about Verity ID, or there are a lot of other interesting startups in this space, uh, which are essentially trying to do tokenized KYC. And the fundamental thing they're trying to solve is: Do I need to? Let me actually say it in a different way. Today, when you go to a bank. You have to upload your ID, you have to upload the front of your ID, the back of your ID, and you have to take a selfie, and you have to do a bunch of kind of KYCAM mail type processing. And then you have to go to a second bank and do the same thing all over again. And then the third bank and have to do the same thing all over again. And so you provided these three banks your entire kind of history or whatever it takes. Can you technically using verifiable credentials or tokenization with so bound tokens, Generate kind of a result, a certified result of your interaction with the first bank and take that to kind of the second a financial institution or a second institution and say, hey, I went through this process, I got approved for this process, and I am who I, I say I am. Right? Can you essentially reach the same level of trust with that person without having that person kind of redo the entire process, right? What Verity ID does or any one of these is really the concept of, can I do this process once, get some sort of certified result, and use it as a pointer and say, hey, you know, I already went through this process. Here's the result, now approve me. So it comes back to the question I mentioned earlier, which is, do you need my information? Or do you want to see proof that I am who I I say I am, right? And they're very, very different things. Right. And so do you need my birth certificate? Or you do you just need a the ability to show that hey I was born on the date that I say I was born? Right. And that's this really cool thing that you can do with verifiable credentials and dids and so on in a way that's kind of coming back to that thing, which is privacy preserving ways to share identity in a scalable, scalable way. That's something I'm super excited about, right? It it creates more privacy and it creates kind of more incentive for folks to kind of comply with whatever regulation they have to comply with because it lowers kind of the friction to redo the process over and over again.
0: I'll take it even one step further, which is I could go through that KYC check that you described, provide all my credit history or government-issued documentation to a centralized provider who then issues a token saying, yes, Ian's been verified in the following ways. We validated you know, source of financial funds or country of residence, but then that token doesn't disclose any of that information. Correct. So zero linkage back to my real world identity. It's just a confirmation that that information's been verified once. And then other services could accept that token and as far as that that other company or application is aware they only have a public key type identifier associated to my user activity they don't know anything about me but they have a level of confidence that someone else has done the the authorization and and assessment of all of my relevant credentials for whatever the application purpose might be and I think that decoupling of real-world identity that you don't have have to release that kind of universally to access most applications makes all the sense in the world.
1: That's right. It comes back to, I, I don't know, when I was a kid in math, they would like make you write out the proof. Yeah. And they would like the fact that you had an answer wouldn't matter. Right. I, al- I always thought that was weird. Like, what doesn't matter as long as I get the final result, that's fine. And it's a little bit similar here, which is okay, do you really need to see the entire proof of my history? Or do you just need to see the result of I am who I am or hey, Circle or Coinbase have certified this address as a real person that you know they want to work with? There's going to be a lot of kind of debates around it. I'm not very much not an expert in this specific field. And I think there are a lot of really interesting uh, companies trying to think about things around tokenized KYC or, or kind of projects like Verity ID that are trying to tackle this uh, heads on.
0: Super exciting. Last question for you before we wrap, like what's next on the horizon for dynamic? What can we expect in future announcements?
1: We're a little bit under wraps, so we're not going to share a crazy amount. I will say the following. He- here's what we care about. We are obsessed around first making sure our customers are happy, right? So you're going to see a lot of our most requested features get launched soon. And the second is is a little bit touching onto that uh, kind of orchestration strategy, which is How do we do a better job abstracting away more and more of the integrations needed to kind of leverage Web3 identity, right? So how do we turn more of these really cool, you know, the lit protocols of the world and lens protocols and and guilds of the world into things that you can just leverage as a developer within a, a click? rather than spend a lot of time implementing. And really the goal there, and it ties into our mission, which is how do we accelerate wallet-based authentication, right? And how do we make it fundamentally easy for folks to implement and leverage? And so you're gonna see us do a lot more on anything that kind of ties into that. Okay, how do we accelerate? How do I make sure that in five years, when you log into a website, you're actually not creating a username and a password and re-entering your same information, but rather you're clicking on a button and it just kind of works, right? And so you're gonna see us do more and more things that try to get to that abstraction.
0: Very exciting. Can't wait to see as you start to ship some of those capabilities. Itai, thanks again for joining us on the podcast today. It was a great chat.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This was fun.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Key. We're releasing new episodes weekly, so if you liked what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe, review, and of course, share with your friends. The DeFi space was once again rocked last week as hackers stole roughly 160 million in stablecoin tokens from market maker Wintermute. The attack was made possible by a vulnerability recently discovered in the address creation tool profanity. Hackers were able to reverse engineer the private key of a wallet known to be used by Wintermute, which was then able to transfer funds out of a vault. If you want to see where the funds have gone, drop into the show notes and you'll find links to our recent analysis.